I am indeed thankful that the work of God is such that we are blessed here at the chapel with, we have kids and grandkids, so we have kids and parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. I'm grateful that really when I look around the chapel, I see four generations actively engaged in the work of God and filling this earth with his glory. So thankful for each one of you and thankful for your part in how you put the Lord on display here. Turn with me now, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6. And as you turn, just really thankful for children, for what they represent about the, the heart of God and the grace of God, that that little life conceived in the womb grows and displays the glory of God. What a great gift. So Ephesians chapter 6, we're in this series that we're calling stand. We're calling it stand because that's the repeated word in this section in Ephesians 6. And I want us to make sure that we understand when when the scripture says here stand, it doesn't mean be stationary. It means don't be knocked down or out. And so we are called to stand, to stand firm, to stand against, to stand strong because verse 12 tells us, We're in a battle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are in a spiritual battle, not a physical battle against people, but there is a real enemy, though unseen, who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And he is at war against us. And so I don't want us to think about, as we look at this series, that we go to war. We don't go to war. We are at war. The scripture says our struggle is, it not will be. We are at war. I think if we have this mentality of, well, no, we're going to war, that... We miss the fact that the war is current. It's right now active among us. War is not something that we engage in and then back out of and then engage in, but we live at war. Again, not against people, but we live at war against an enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy not only us, but literally those babies that... We held before us just now. The attack against us, against them, will always be in the form of lies because he, the scripture says, our enemy is the father of lies. When he speaks, he lies. And he lies to do three things, to deceive us in order that he could tempt us. And when we yield then to that temptation because of that deception by his lies, then he accuses us. We have an enemy who wants to deceive, who has now for decades been deceiving with this whole idea, this lie that life begins at birth, not at conception. And thankfully, technology has dramatically revealed it's impossible, literally, it's impossible to look at a sonogram and not go, that's life. 
That's the power of First Coast Women's Services because they offer sonograms to people who don't think that pregnancy, they just think of it as a situation instead of a person. But you roll that over that pregnant lady's belly and you begin to see on the screen a heart beating and a baby forming and you go, you cannot argue. You might not want to agree with it, but you cannot argue. That's life. Life doesn't begin at birth. Life begins at conception. But that's a lie to deceive that it's not really a baby until it's born, which leads to temptation, which then leads to great accusation and the guilt that so many have felt and lived with after they have yielded to the temptation because of the lie. It's not really a life. What you would not do to a baby, you can do to this mass in you. You see the lie. I'm just bringing it to life there because this is sanctity of human life Sunday. Just recognizing that that's one of many lies that we are in a spiritual warfare. Not against people, but against a liar who deceives and tempts and accuses. And we recognize that lies may change, but they will not stop. Meaning, the reality is, lies that may, be, may have been in the past effective in your life, you have conquered with truth, and you may think, oh, those lies don't work anymore, so I'm good. Well, when li- old lies don't work anymore, then we have an enemy who will create new lies. In fact, if you are thinking, nah, I don't really think I have any lies that are effective in my life, there you go. I don't believe any lies anymore. Mm, You believe that one. If you think you don't believe any lies anymore, there's the first one, that you are so deceived that you don't even know you are deceived. That is the nature of deception, right? If you knew you were deceived, you wouldn't be deceived. (laughs) And so, we're always at war because... You might win one battle and then attack will come on another front and it's always on another what? Another lie, a different lie. A lie that used to condemn now may be one that accuses. The lie that used to beat you up, now you go, yeah, I'm strong. And now you think you're not vulnerable anymore. And so now you have a new lie. The enemy will always seek to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. He cannot steal your eternal life, but he will seek to render you useless and fruitless as a child of God by deceiving, tempting, accusing you with new lies. So how do we stand against that? That was verse 12. Before verse 12, he says this, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes, the lies of the devil. And what we said, we're at war. That was verse 12. What's he say after that? Next verse. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So at the core of standing against a lying enemy is... The armor of God. And that's what we're going to start looking at this morning. We're going to take our time as we look through the armor of God because the armor of God, verse 11, verse 13, 
is the key to standing against the schemes of the devil. And I don't know if you picked it up, but he says one thing in verse 11 about the armor and another thing in verse 13. In verse 11, he says, there's armor to put on. That's the language, verse 11. There's armor that we put on. But what's he say then in verse 13? Ah, there is armor to take up. I don't know that I ever had heard that before, but I was like, there it is, right there in the text. There's armor that we put on and there's armor to take up. And, and there's a distinction between 11 and 13 because this equipment is twofold. It's for protection. We have armor that protects us against the lies. And we have armor for prevailing. In other words, we're not just trying not to get knocked down. That is part of standing, but we're not stationary. We're also advancing. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So it's not just that we're trying not to get knocked down. That's protective, but we are advancing against an enemy who is trying to destroy us. So what's the first piece of the armor of God that it speaks of then in verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. How many of you girded your loins this morning? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Men, you didn't have to gird your loins this morning. Do you know why? Because I think you're wearing pants. What are you talking about? Girding your loins with truth is about the attire that typically would have been worn at this day. A robe, what you and I would think of as a full-length robe, but not the one that we would put on and then tie like this, but one that would come over the head and have holes for arms and then head. And so most men, I'm assuming, don't have experience wearing long gowns. And so we don't understand that typically there would have been restricted movement. And you can't go to war if your movement is restricted. So girding your loins simply is grabbing the bottom of the back of your robe, pulling it up and tucking it in your belt. Now normally I demonstrate verses just described. So why aren't I? Because a man who's girded his loins with truth looks like he's wearing a mega diaper. And I know what you would do with pictures of me wearing a mega diaper. So we're describing, not demonstrating. But a man who went from, and ladies, you'll have a better feel for this. A man who went from wearing what would have been a more restrictive long robe is now legs free to move, to keep balance, to lunge, to run. It's about girding your loins is very simply about this, being ready. No matter what else you do, if you have not girded your loins, you're not ready. You're not ready to be able to stand because you can't keep your balance well, and you're not ready to advance because you can't run or lunge well. So the first action in standing is girding the loins, being ready. 
So there are two texts in the New Testament that speak to this issue of the armor of God and give more specific expression of what it means to be ready in light of our time. So first, 1 Thessalonians, and I encourage you to write this down if you're taking notes right here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 and 8 say this. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. So being ready is a what? About not being asleep, being awake, and being sober and alert. He says in verse 8, but since we are of the day, Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, this hope of salvation. So maybe you thought the armor was only in Ephesians 6. It's not. He references here. But he doesn't talk about the girding your loins there. He uses very specific expressions. Gird your loins by being awake and sober and alert. Romans 13, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Well, what's the difference between the armor of light and the armor of God? Nothing. It's just another expression of the fact that we have Given, been given from God armor for protection and prevailing. But it starts with being ready. And to be ready, you have to be awake. You may go, really? Yes. When's the thief come? At night. Why? Because you're asleep. And if you're asleep, you're not ready. You can't protect You can't prevail. That might seem so obvious, but it starts by being awake. (laughs) So, the more godly you are, the less you sleep. (laughs) Some people think that. I get around people, you know, spiritual. When did you get up? 4 a.m. I've been up since 4. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about that. It's not necessarily more godly. Now, does Proverbs say a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands? Yeah. Can you be lazy? How many of you can be lazy? Yeah. Thank you for taking the effort to raise your hand and not being lazy. Yeah. You, we could all be lazy. So I'm not encouraging you. Hey, it's more godly to be lazy? No. And it's more not more godly to never sleep. Actually, in preparing, I thought, I wonder what's out there regarding sleep and military. And the studies are almost countless about the necessity of physical sleep for effective engagement in battle. So it's not about, hey, how are we going to sleep less? It's about this. How do we utilize sleep and when do we sleep for the sake of most effective engagement in battle? So I I engaged on a process, a thought process that I've never really gone down before. And I think I've only scratched the surface, but I asked myself, when was the Jesus awake but the disciples asleep? And one of almost all of you think of a particular occasion immediately. But there's more than one. The first one is in Mark chapter 1, 
where after a full night of ministry, of healing, after the sun had set on the Sabbath, everybody come into Jesus. The next morning, the disciples are asleep, but it says that Jesus, while it was still dark, he got up and he went to an isolated, excluded place and prayed. And then there's this moment after Jesus has spent the morning in prayer and the disciples have slept in, they have a conversation of, what's today hold? And they go, well, it's obvious. We got people everywhere here who want to touch from you. And Jesus, who had been up early, meeting with the Father, said, no, I got my marching orders for today. And that is that we are to go to other places, other villages, to preach the gospel elsewhere. And it would seem they part ways. And they don't connect again until along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is preaching again and borrows Peter's boat. What's happening there? Somebody's awake listening to the Lord while somebody is sleeping and assuming they know what the day holds. There's the full night of prayer before Jesus chooses the 12. Do you know that? That's in Luke chapter 6. Literally says, he spent the whole night in prayer before he chose the 12. They had no idea what was going on. They slept the whole way through. I'm not blaming them. They just, they didn't But he does not choose the 12. You go, you go, come on, he's Jesus. Yeah, who wanted to be fully in line with the Father. So he spent a night in prayer before he chose the 12. And then, here's the one you were all thinking about. Jesus where? Jesus in the garden, the night of his arrest. And in this occasion, there's three times where Jesus is awake and they fall asleep. And he says to them, hey, will you pray? And then I'm going to go off, and, but you stay here and pray. And, and he comes back and they're sleeping. And that's been true for all of us. How many of you have said, I'm going to pray and then you slept? Yeah. All the, yeah. All of you. Or you didn't pray. I don't know anybody who didn't start to say, I'm going to try and pray, and then fell asleep. And Jesus is like, hey, wow, this is like a major moment in my life. Could you stay awake, please? You'd think sufficiently scolded in that way, you'd go, I'm awake. Comes back a second time, and they're asleep. And then it happens a third time. Now, this is historical narrative, so... We're not building doctrine here, but I am asking myself this question. If readiness for battle means be awake, what do I learn from Jesus being awake at times where disciples slept? And then what about the opposite? Is there ever a time where the disciples are awake but Jesus slept? I think there's one time. Matthew 8, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him, woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, you may think, oh, that makes sense. They're on like an ocean cruise liner. that They're on one end of the ship freaking out, and he's on the end of this other end of the ship sleeping. But that's not what we're talking about. What are we talking about? The size of boat, there to there. So how are they perishing and he's sleeping? That doesn't make much sense, does it? 
They're perishing. They're like, help us. And he's like, uh, what? What? What he says to him is, why are you afraid? <laughs> and of course, what are you thinking? Uh, look around. That's why I'm afraid. You know, like water coming into the boat, me sinking to the bottom. That's why I'm afraid. And then he said, you men have little faith. So what do we do with these observations of times when Jesus is awake? but disciples sleep, and when Jesus sleeps, but disciples are awake. We don't build doctrine, but as I started to scratch the surface, and I've been at this for a few weeks trying to think, Lord, what do you learn from this? And here's a couple of just scratching the surface thoughts. First, I'm challenged to learn to rest in God regarding my physical concerns. Now, that might seem obvious, but I really can relate to being awake at night with my mind consumed about stuff that I'm pretty sure Jesus would be asleep over. Maybe you can't. But stuff keeps me awake at night. And it's generally physical concern stuff. Maybe you lay awake at night thinking about your health or somebody's health or your finances or your business or the storms in your life. You see what I'm saying? The stuff that's going, am I going to sink here? Am I going to survive? Are we going to survive? And you lay awake. There's something profound about Jesus sleeping in the storm that says he had a faith, a confidence in the Lord as his good shepherd, that he was immortal until the will of God was accomplished in his life. There's something powerful about the fact that he was 100% certain that he was in the Father's hands and that panic and worry it's not going to make a difference. I want to learn to rest like that, and I think there's a lot of folks that would like to learn to rest like that. So I don't have any magic answers for us, but it's something I take away, and I want to encourage you to go, Lord, would you teach me to trust in a way that would cause me to rest in you like Jesus rested in the Father in the midst of storms. Psalm 3. I lay down and slept, though 10,000 surround me. I don't need 10,000 to surround me. Three or four will keep me awake. <laughs> Seriously. Isn't that crazy? And there's something profound. I've often cried out to the Lord, Psalm 3, in the lying awake. Lord, I'm surrounded. I have this going on. I feel threatened. I want to learn to sleep. Second observation for me that desire to learn the value of sacrificing physical sleep to cultivate intimacy with God. This is what I think I see so profoundly in the life of Jesus. And it's kind of the last place we think we, we need to see it. 
You know, why would Jesus need to stay up all night? He's God. (laughs) This is where we come back to Jesus lived as God intended man to really live. He had laid aside all the rights and privileges. He was still God, but he had laid aside those rights and privileges in order to demonstrate what it means to live in complete dependence, communion with the Father. And that meant a willingness to sacrifice sleep at appropriate times for the sake of intimacy with the Lord. See, there's probably appropriate time, not probably, there are appropriate times to say, I'm going to get up while it's still dark and say, Lord, what do you have for me today? And I'm challenged. I shouldn't assume I know. The disciples assumed they knew. Jesus, cultivating intimacy with the Father, concluded differently. Common sense said, stay. The Father said, go. So cultivating intimacy with the Lord. This is where Proverbs, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, a little hitting of snooze and rolling over. Where our love for physical sleep, we end up sacrificing intimacy with the Lord because we love physical sleep. It's a challenge for me. And then this reality. The capacity to be awake at the needed time requires the discipline of going to sleep at appropriate times. In other words, super challenged by the reality that uh, I'm willing to lose sleep for stuff that doesn't matter. And reluctant to then lose sleep for stuff that does. And when I'm willing to lose sleep for stuff that doesn't matter, it makes it hard to, lo- to uh, get up for stuff that does. I think you can read between the lines there. You know where that's true in your life. Uh, a commitment, a commitment to sports in our current world, and I'm not against sports. But a commitment to sports is often results in a sacrificing of things that do matter for things that really don't. And that comes down to being willing to go to bed. Why? So I can get up. I'd never really thought through these, a theology of sleep before. I feel like I've just kind of scratched the surface. So I gave you those passages. Maybe you would think more personally, more deeply about what the Lord may be saying to you on that. Second, be sober. That was, I hope you saw that. That was what we saw in First Thess 5, 6. Don't be asleep. Be sober. And be sober, I think, is most easily understood as the opposite of being drunk. You know, you be sober. I don't know. Well, let's just think be drunk. Don't be drunk. Because you can label this however you want. Either be sober or the drunk aren't able. But uh, if you're drunk, you don't speak accurately. If you're sober, you have the capacity to speak accurately. If you're drunk, you don't walk effectively. The sober can walk effectively. If you're drunk, you don't relate appropriately. Or decide wisely. 
Those are the characteristics of the, what the drunk don't do. Maybe that doesn't help you. It just helps me be able to go, what don't the drunk do? Okay, that tells me what the sober do. The sober speak accurately, walk effectively, relate appropriately, and decide wisely. See, they, they gird up their loins in truth. For some, the specific issue really is alcohol. Alcohol is causing you to not be sober, and therefore, you are making foolish decisions, decisions and, and you are getting eaten alive by an enemy who is destroying your life by means of the lie that the alcohol is not affecting you. We have a lot of what we would describe in this culture as functioning drunks. People who live with a perpetual buzz and are telling themselves a lie, it's really not impacting me, I'm fine. But they're not sober. And that sobriety is causing them that lack of sobriety, excuse me, is causing them to not be ready to engage in war, spiritual warfare. So, for some, and it seems more and more, according to, you've probably read this, according to everything I've read, COVID has increased alcohol sales exponentially. I find it interesting that in Mandarin, I see a couple more liquor stores popping up. That tells me that's profitable. So let's not, let's not deceive ourselves. Hey, you've heard me say a jillion times from the, from the front, the scripture does not say that drinking is wrong. It says drunkenness is wrong. But let's not think, ah, uh, you know, I'm not really drunk or alcohol isn't getting a foothold in our life. Let's be wise, be sober. But I probably have a greater concern of what I would call a drunkenness on life in the American church. A drunkenness on life. Most of the world isn't drunk on life because they're like, oh, life isn't that great. I don't, I'm not that thirsty for more. But there's a, a clear intoxication with life in our country and therefore potentially our church where we get drunk on life and therefore we are not sober for the kingdom of God. Now you may go, I've never thought about drunk on life. What are we talking about? When I'm drunk on life, Possessions and progress are more important than people. Things, see, the whole issue of, of sobriety is that I see things clearly, and when I'm drunk, I don't. When I'm intoxicated, I don't see things clearly. And when I'm intoxicated on life, I get things backwards. And people become less important than what I have and the progress I'm making. Or ease and convenience are more important than serving and helping. I think there's a generational shift happening, church. 
where there was a generation greatly, deeply committed to possessions and stuff and progress. And now there's a generational shift to the real God of this world is ease and convenience. And if it's hard, I'm out. Oh, except we say it more clearly. If it's hard, the Lord is closing the door. And convenience is our liquor. It's no, it's no accident in our current day that in so many churches and ministries, finances are up and volunteerism is way down. Because it's easier to stroke a check than it is to sacrifice my convenience and my ease. And I just pay somebody else to do it. Or better yet, why don't I not work and you just pay me to stay home? Ease and convenience versus Jesus came. I didn't come to said I, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I came to lay down my life as a ransom for many. And we're in danger of becoming intoxicated with ease and convenience, of going, yeah, I want to serve as long as I can fit it in between the ease and convenience in my life. It's not that I don't want to serve. I just don't want to do it when it's not convenient for me. Now, if you think, man, you're like really like stomping on us. I'm not. I didn't read this in a book. I just looked in my own life. And I recognize my own propensity to be drunk on life. And if you think that's too harsh, well, then just to have a buzz on life. Or agendas and feelings are more important than truth. Truth has definitely taken a back seat to agenda and taken a back seat to feeling in our day. And being intoxicated is simply saying that there's something ruling my life, which is why Ephesians 5, it said what? Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit of God be controlling your life, not alcohol or possessions or progress or ease or convenience or agenda or feeling. See, we're simply dealing with seeing things clearly and being able to react and respond appropriately because we're sober and, and it's easy to get intoxicated with more things than simply beer, wine, and liquor. It's easy to get intoxicated on life. And if we're intoxicated on life, <laughs> our, our loins are not girded and we're not able to protect to move, to keep from getting knocked down, or to prevail. You with me? You see it? This is a, I think, the Lord speaking to us this morning. Be awake. Cultivate intimacy with God. Be sober. And be alert. Be alert. You see how they build? <laughs> you, 
can't be alert if you're not sober. <laughs> and if you're sober but asleep, uh, no matter. So first, I have to be up, awake. And if I'm awake, am I sober? And if I'm sober, am I alert? You know the difference? I, I, can, I can be sober but miss things all the time. And Jackie will every once in a while make it clear. I come home. Do you see what I changed? No idea, babe. You know, I've changed something. What is it? Uh, No clue. Or how about this one? Do you remember what I was wearing today? Hmm. Clothes? I wasn't drunk. This is what really alert. You see, there's something, there's an attentiveness that comes with alertness that goes beyond sober. So awake, sober, alert. Uh, Alert says my faculties, my affections, uh, my attentions are, are ready ready for attack because we've already established we are not going to war. We are at war. Every moment of every day, we're at war. When we think we're at war, we're most vulnerable. When we think we're beyond attack, we're most vulnerable. So we're alert. I hope, I genuinely hope that in the past seven days since we met last week and we talked about the lies to tempt, to deceive, to accuse, that you were actually more alert in this last week to lies than you had been the previous. We have to be alert or (laughs) we won't be ready. Our loins won't be girded. And we're alert by going, I'm learning what lies work. I'm learning the usual paths of the enemy. It won't be as always past, but there is current usual. And so maybe some of you have taken the challenge to say, I have intentionally picked some scripture that speaks directly against the lies of the enemy. I'm doing what Jesus did. I am preparing myself when lies come to Defeat with truth because truth is knowable, which makes temptation resistible. See, if those things aren't washing through you, you're not ready for attack. It's going to happen, and you got to be alert. And this truth is essential. Cultivating intimacy with God is being awake so that you can be sober and be alert, alert to attack, and alert to opportunity. Colossians 4, maybe you'd write it down. Colossians 4, make the most of your opportunity with outsiders. In other words, as people of God, God gives us opportunity with those who are not yet part of the family of God, and we miss them. We miss them on our street. We miss them at work. We miss them in our family. Why? Quite frankly, because we're asleep or drunk. And again, I'm thinking beyond alcohol. We miss opportunities. Why? Very simply. 
Because we're preoccupied by the things we've talked about. Possessions, progress, ease, convenience, agenda, or feeling. So we miss it, the opportunity. So give you two examples, really encouraged, just from earlier in Ephesians 6. Two examples of being alert to attack and to opportunity. Uh, I got this email last week, actually as a text from a guy in our body. As you are likely aware, most large companies in America are creating diversity and inclusion departments. Unfortunately, the company I work for is no different. As a result, groups are being formed to represent all kinds of quote-unquote minority classifications. A good friend of mine and I decided we'd start a Christian group for the company. The vetting and application process to start the group has taken four months. It was obvious they were hoping we would give up. Today, we received approval to move forward. And I want you to know we are using the 12 attributes of a God-honoring worker from Ephesians 6 earlier as our foundation. They could not argue with the list of attributes as we presented them. Now that's, that's taking opportunity and going, I'm going to bring truth into the marketplace. And some of you are wrestling with that right now. How are you going to stand against lies and stand for truth in the marketplace? Tuesday. This man wrote, after the message on spirit-filled authority, oh, band. We're going to sing. This is how we work things out in advance. The band should be coming up as I'm reading this to you. And it was supposed to be really subtle, but I forgot. So how's that for completely non-subtle? But better to get it done than to be subtle, right? Sorry, Matt. And now everybody online can see what your shirt says because we were all wondering what was behind the guitar. Love, you're not alone. There we go. All we could see was love, which was really 60s of you. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> okay. Pass the non-subtle back to the text from Tuesday. Email this one, sorry. After the message on spirit-filled authority, so interesting, same message, I taped the 12 attributes of a God-honoring boss to my whiteboard in my office as a reminder slash encouragement to myself and to be transparent to the staff so that they could hold me accountable. From my office on Friday, I could hear some of the staff beginning to gossip and complain about another coworker. I sat for a moment and realized I had the choice to either stay put and ignore it, or I could go and confront the issue. It would have been so much easier to stay in my seat. But I read, number six, you avoid drama. And the Lord prompted me and told me, I'm not only avoiding drama, I need to squelch it lovingly by turning the conversation. Didn't know exactly what I was going to say when I walked out there, so I simply asked the Lord for courage and words. See, did you catch that? How many times do we go, Lord, I don't know what to do. Give me the words. Give me the words and I'll go. And the guy went, 
No. The Lord had made it clear. Go. So I went saying, Lord, I need you to give me the words. See the difference there? So often we wait to what the clearly revealed word of the Lord is. We don't do what he says because we want all our T's crossed and our I's dotted and then we'll go. But this is, this is real life version of Abraham going without knowing. So if we're going to stand in our current culture, we're going to have to gird up our loins, be awake, be sober, and be alert to step into opportunity that we might not know exactly how it's going to go or how it's going to turn out. Just we need to stand firm, strong against in the Lord. See, how did this whole section start? Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Why? Because the battle is the Lord's and we're his people stand in truth and so he says I didn't know exactly what I was going to say when I walked out there so I simply asked the Lord for courage and words long story short the ensuing conversation resulted in an opportunity for team building and folks walked away feeling empowered with a new game plan about how everyone would contribute to the workload When we're awake and sober and alert, we can turn the tide of a conversation, of a person's trajectory, of a family path. But we have to be ready. Awake, what's next? Sober, and finally, alert. Let's stand and declare, this is the Lord's battle. When all I see is the battle, you see my victory.
individually just outside of each auditorium and i hope you'll take advantage of that and remember like ephesians 6 10 like doug just said be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might let's do that now in the coming hours and coming days go and be blessed see you next time